listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're back in the Sermon on the Mount. We took a one-week break, uh, and last weekend we looked at the issue of water baptism. I had somebody come up to me this morning, in fact, and said, I want to be water baptized. So at any point, if that's something that, uh, you know, the Lord's leading you to do, you've made a decision to follow Jesus, you haven't been baptized, come talk to us or write it on a Connect card, get it to us, and we'll be adding you to that list. But we're picking up where we left off in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount? It is not an ordinary sermon. It's the most important sermon ever preached. And in this sermon, Jesus is giving his manifesto, his vision for what human life can look like and should be like and one day will be like under his reign. And uh, we've been working through it verse by verse, passage by passage. It's a large passage of scripture. It encompasses three chapters of the Bible, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so we've been at it here since September of last year. We're, we're probably going to go into the summer, into July. So we're taking our time with this and just, we're just allowing the Bible to uh, give us what needs to be preached. And I like preaching this way because when we preach through a large passage of the Bible like this, it forces me as a preacher to preach on certain topics and issues that I might not otherwise be prone to preach on. If I, um, if I were picking and choosing what to preach on from week to week, I probably uh, would preach on certain things and probably would be prone to not preach on other things. But when I just preach through the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus preached it, you know, it, it forces me to preach on some topics that maybe we need to hear Maybe we need to hear preaching on, but otherwise I wouldn't have been inclined to do. So it's a very stretching thing. And I'm going to end up preaching sermons sometimes that I don't necessarily want to preach. And uh, to be honest with you, that kind of includes this sermon and (laughs) maybe a few others that are going to be coming down the pike very soon. But, But I think it's going to be healthy for us and it's going to be stretching for me and healthy for me as a preacher. And I do believe God has something very very important he wants to share with us, and so may our heart be, hearts be tuned to what God might want to say. And so we're going to be looking today at the issue of lust, and our passage is Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. And so we're going to read it, and then I want us to pray. We're going to pray over the sermon. I also want to, want to include in our prayers Aurora uh, Nylander and her family. Her mother is very, very ill, very sick, and, and according to Aurora, it seems like she's near the end. And and so we want to, she's asking us to pray for just a peaceful, comfortable transition for her mother. So let's pray for Aurora in just a moment and her family. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. <clears throat> but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Somebody impress me. What is the Greek word for hell? Do you remember? Gehenna. Wonderful. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into Gehenna. Hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
what a wonderful time of worship as we've gathered today as the body of Christ, a local expression of your body. And now we want to worship you in listening and hearing from your Holy Spirit through the word. And I just pray that, uh, Lord, each of us would just make this time consecrated to you, that we would um, eliminate any distractions, whether internally, externally, anything that might compete for our attention. Lord, we pray for our sister, Aurora, uh, who is, Lord, her mother's in this place of transition. And I just, I just ask for a peaceful, restful transition for her mother. Thank you, Lord, for our moms and our dads. And Lord, I know Aurora is grateful for her mother. Just bless that family, that household, and give them peace and comfort in this time. And Lord, bless our time together. Speak to the very core of our being. And let your agenda be carried out in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Gospel of Matthew. I think, I think we need to pay attention to the sequence that Matthew gives us here at the very beginning. He starts by telling us that Jesus is an anonymous carpenter's son in Galilee. It seems like he comes out of nowhere. Nobody knows who this man is except his cousin John seems to know who he is. And the very first thing that happens with Jesus is he gets baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And um, somebody asked me this morning, when we go to Israel, are we going to get baptized in the Jordan River? Yes, we are. But I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be freezing cold, and we're going to have catfish nipping at our heels the whole time. <laughs> Been there, done that. But Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan. And the Father speaks over him. You remember? You are my son, who, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Then right after that, the, the language is very interesting. It says that the Spirit pushes Jesus into the desert. Spirit pushes Jesus into the wilderness where he's going to spend the next 40 days being tested by the enemy. Now, the sequence here is not by mistake. Why, why are these two events held together in Matthew's gospel, the baptism and then the 40 days in the wilderness? Because what Jesus is doing, he's reenacting this, the, the Israel story. If you go back something like 1,400 years or so, Israel escapes bondage in Egypt, and they pass through the waters of the Red Sea on dry ground, but they pass through the waters, and then they spend the next 40 years in the desert being tested by the enemy. And whereas Israel, 1,400 years earlier, fails the test, Jesus is going to be victorious. And I think what Matthew wants to show us is that Jesus is taking the identity and mission of Israel on his own back and he's the one who's going to carry that mission through to the finish line. And then, having gone through the waters of baptism and having gone through the testing in the wilderness, now Jesus is ready to launch his ministry, and he does so by making an earth-shaking announcement. And every single little village and town he goes to in, in Galilee, he makes the same announcement. It's one sentence. Repent. Turn. Change the trajectory of your life. Why? Because the kingdom is at hand. The, the very kingdom of God is right in front of your face. It's, it's right in your midst. In other words, what he's saying is that in the midst of a world that's gone horribly wrong, how many of you know the world's gone horribly wrong? In the midst of a world that's gone desperately wrong, God has now intervened into the affairs of human beings. 
through the person of Jesus Christ, he's now going to set things right. Ever since the very beginning of human civilization, our societies have largely been founded upon and formed in the ways of lust, greed, and violence. And it's brought unmitigated chaos and death and destruction upon the earth. But now, Jesus arrives and he is going to show us a whole new way of life, a whole new way to be human, a whole different way to arrange society around and underneath his reign, the Jesus way of life, the way that does not lead to death and destruction and chaos, the way that leads to life as God intends. And the very next thing Jesus does after this announcement, repent for the kingdom is at hand, is now he ascends the mountain and he gives the Sermon on the Mount. And what is the sermon once again? It is his vision. This is what it's gonna look like when the world lives the Jesus way. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount with an eightfold announcement that we call the Beatitudes. Through these eight statements, Jesus is announcing the kinds of people who are going to be blessed and happy about this new order of society called the kingdom of God. So Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be made right, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is how Jesus begins his sermon. And then the very next thing he does, just to give a quick recap, the very next thing he does is he says, for those of us who are going to embrace this kingdom, for those of us who are going to embrace the Jesus way of life, as he says at the end of the sermon, for those who will take these words he's giving us and actually put them into practice, he says, you're going to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. You're going to be like a city set upon a hill so that the whole entire world can lift up their eyes and look at you, my people, my church, who are actually living the Jesus way of life, and they're gonna be able to look at you and be mesmerized and say, wow, this is what life can be like. This is what the world needs to be like. This is what's possible for us if we just embrace the Jesus way of life. I wanna be a part of that. And you understand, this was always what God was up to. From the very beginning, when God gives the law to ancient Israel, the whole purpose of giving the law is to begin to form Israel into a worshiping and just society. This is why the next thing Jesus says is, don't think I've come to get rid of the law. No, I've come to take the law, the heart behind it, and bring it through to its fulfillment. What does he say is the fulfillment of the law at the end of uh, Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40? Here's what it all is summed up in. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
and loving your neighbors as yourselves. This is what the law is given for. That's the heart behind it. Properly worshiping and just people, loving God, loving one another. That's what God's up to in the world. That's what God's up to here at Village Church. Make it real simple. God's forming us into people who love God well and love one another well. But love is not something that is just simply located in the external behaviors of our lives. It eventually ends up there. But love begins in the core of our being, in our heart, and then flows into the extremities of our lives. And see, this was a course correction that needed to be made, and Jesus knew it had to be made, because so many of his contemporary religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, had gotten the thing backward, and they were so focused on being strict about their um, following an external set of laws, and yet they still had a heart that was full of lust and greed and pride. And that's why Jesus elsewhere, he's gonna, he's gonna tell them very strongly, you guys are like whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. In other words, you look great on the outside. Your life looks clean as can be on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of all manner of spiritual decay. And so in order to expose that, Jesus then begins to quote certain laws and traditions that were very dear to them and he drives it deeper. So he says, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Where do they hear that? Ten Commandments, that's the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Yeah, that's what you've heard. And you're really good at abstaining from murder. You're great at it. <laughs> but he says, let's drive it deeper. What about the um, anger and bitterness that you nurture in your heart? What about the insulting disposition you have towards certain categories of people in the world? He says, that's going to steer you off course if you're trying to walk the way of righteousness, the Jesus way of life. You cannot walk the Jesus way and, and cherish and nurture the anger that's in your heart and feed that. And then he says, you've heard it said in the passage we looked at earlier and that, that we're going to talk about today. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I'm going to give you guys another chance. How many of you are, agree with that? Yeah. All right. Because like two weeks ago, you didn't seem so sure. <laughs> you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But, but he says, let's, let's not just focus on your external behavior. Let's get to the core of the thing, your heart. And let's talk about the lust that you nurture within your heart because that's going to take you off course as well. So notice he begins with these two issues of anger and lust. Those are the first two things that he draws their attention to. And why is it anger and lust? Well, I believe it's because nearly all interpersonal sin is rooted in the issues of anger and lust. What do I mean by interpersonal sin? I, I just mean sin between human beings. Nearly, nearly all interpersonal sin is rooted in the issues of anger and lust. Now, we know about anger. I think we understand it. But we got to get our minds wrapped around this issue of lust. What is lust? And I'm going to make this statement. You may not agree with it at first. But if you'll give me a few moments, I, I think I'm going to persuade you. Lust is what makes the world go round. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, chapter 2, here's how he essentially says it. I'm going to paraphrase and put it in my own words. But what John says is that the whole world, the whole system of the world, is built upon lust for money, sex, and power. 
Now, in our English translations, that's not how it's put. It, he says it like lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. But each of those three things correspond to what I just said. The whole world is founded upon and energized by lust for money, sex, and power. That's what fuels the discourse and the economies of our world. That's the engine behind empire. If you go back to the very beginning, if you want to talk about ancient Egypt or ancient Babylon or Greece or Rome, all the way up until the present day, what human beings have done is, is rather clever. We've recognized that we are lustful beings. In other words, we have an instinct within us. Every one of us has an instinct, at least, to take what we want at the expense of of others. And what there, throughout history, what certain ones have recognized is that we could take this lustful instinct that's in the human self and we can really harness this lustful energy and channel it a certain way so that we can build a really powerful and productive society and really uh, churn out some goods and, and get this economy humming. But here's where we gotta be careful is when we, when we approach life and we approach human relationships solely through that lens, the inevitable tendency is to begin to treat human beings as objects for our personal benefit. And that's what lust is. If you were to ask me, Ryan, what is lust? What is your definition of lust? I'm gonna give it to you. Lust is treating a person as an object in order to satisfy a selfish desire. That's worth writing down, and that's worth getting into your heads. I'm going to say it again. Lust is treating a person as an object in order to satisfy a selfish desire. And it always operates in one of those three channels, lust for money, sex, or power. Whenever we begin to treat human beings as a means to an end, we are committing the sin of lust. And what it does is it dehumanizes people. What, what, is, what is it that makes a human human? What makes human beings human beings? Is it just our ability to stand on our hind legs and form words with our mouths and eat spaghetti and pizza and watch television? Is that what makes us human? No, what makes a human being a human being is that we uniquely are created to bear the image of God. Therefore, human beings are an end in and of themselves. They are not a means to something. And their worth is intrinsic to who they are because they're made in God's image. In other words, you don't have to do anything to acquire value for yourself. And whenever we, as, either as an individual or as a society, when we begin to look upon certain kinds of people, like let's just say the infirm, the handicapped, the elderly, those people in our society who, who may no longer have the means to contribute like other categories of people, when we begin to set these people aside and we assess them as having less value, that is a very dangerous, demonic, destructive philosophy. 
Human beings are not a means to anything else. Their value is intrinsic to who they are simply because they bear the image of their creator. You are valuable because you carry within yourself the image of God. And it doesn't matter how smart you are or how not smart you are. It doesn't matter how attractive you are or unattractive. It doesn't matter how productive you are or not so productive. None of that has anything to do with establishing your value. Your value comes from the fact that you bear the image of God and you're a person for whom Christ died. You ever want to know what your value is as a human being? Look at the cross. The cross tells you what your worth is. You're worth dying for. In God's opinion. And his is the only opinion that counts. So we must remember that people are not producers or consumers. Contrary to how our society operates and the assumptions that govern our society, human beings are not defined by their ability to produce or their ability, their ability to consume. That is a lie. They have value simply because they bear God's image. And for those of us who are on this journey of learning to live the Jesus way, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we've got to break out of that cultural assumption and pattern that wants to size people up according to their ability to, to be useful to us. How can I, how can I use this person? How can this person boost me up the uh, social pecking order? No, 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 no. With every person you meet, they have intrinsic value simply because they're made in God's image. And that's that, period. And so you have to be even careful sometimes about the innocent phrases that we would use with our children or grandchildren. When you drop your child or grandchild off at school or you drop the child off at a sporting event and you go park and they leave the car and the last thing you say is, make me proud. That's not their job. Their job is not to make you proud. Your job is to be proud of them no matter what. Your job is to give them unconditional. I don't care who your child is and what their life looks like. Your job is to love them unconditionally and be proud of them no matter what and to affirm that you have value simply because you're made in God's image and you're my child, and that's that. And I know parents mean well when they say things like, make me proud, but if you really take that statement and you unpack where it's coming from, really what's being said is, I want to use you for my own capacity to feel good about myself. And I want to boast about you to my friends. So I need you to be an athletic star. I need you to be a 4.0 student because I want to use you to be proud of myself. And we need to stop doing that. Instead, we need to give unconditional affirmation to our children that is not based on their ability to perform a certain way. That's, that's using people, our own children nonetheless. All right, now, now here comes a question that I really want you to think upon for a moment. I want you to meditate on this question. Don't answer out loud, but just think about it. Sit with it for a moment. What are people for? What are people for? Are they for meeting our needs and fulfilling our dreams and satisfying our lusts and making our stuff? The proper use of people is to respect them for the image of God that they bear. 
and to love them for the unique person they are and not to view them as a means to an end. Listen, listen carefully to what I want to tell you today. As Jesus' people who are walking the Jesus way, we must learn how to view every single person we meet for the dignity and the, and the value they have as an image bearer. And when we do not learn how to respect the basic human dignity and value that every single person carries, we conspire with the devil to make the world a worse place. I don't care whether you agree with the person or not, whether you like their lifestyle or not, whether you, whether you share their perspective on things, I, not, all of that's irrelevant when it comes to respecting the basic human dignity and value of every human being, a person who's made in God's image. To misuse people or to abuse people or to view them as a means to an end is to defile the sacred, which is sacrilege. Why? Because people are sacred. Human beings are sacred. They bear God's image. This is what I want you to learn today. People are sacred. People are sacred. Say that, say that with me. People are sacred. Say it again. People are sacred. People are not things. People are not objects. People are not a means to an end. And in this passage, Jesus, in the strongest language he can come up with, denounces this way of life that treats human beings as objects. Look at what he says again, verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, I think, first of all, we need to understand that Jesus here is using hyperbole. He's using, in other words, exaggeratory language which was very common in Jewish culture. We use it in our culture as well, but not nearly as much as the ancient Jews would use hyperbole. It's all over your Bible. And so he's exaggerating here in order to make a forceful point. It would be no different than if I were to go to one of our staff members, and I'm going to use Ben. <laughs> ben, who evidently is wearing the same color pants as me today. Look at that. Um, but Ben's right in front of me, so I'm going to use Ben. It would be like this. Let's say that I have a task here at the church, somewhere around the church, and it's, I just really need to get it done. And it's very time sensitive, and it's going to be very difficult. It's going to take a lot of effort in a short period of time, but it's extremely important, extremely urgent. So I go to Ben and I say, Ben, I, I just, man, I need you to break your back on this one. Well, I say that, but tomorrow I don't expect to have to go visit Ben in the hospital because he's in traction, because he's broken a vertebrae. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm using that language because I just, there's something important I have to communicate. And even on an emotional level, I, wanna, I want this importance and this urgency of this message to land with him. So I, I put it in those terms. That's what Jesus is doing here. I think everybody here understands, hopefully, uh, that Jesus is not advocating for self-mutilation. But he's, he's just using strong language because he's trying to drive home the seriousness of what he wants to say. And what, what he's saying is simply this. When we go through life 
treating human beings who are sacred and we defile them and use them as things, Jesus is telling us that is the highway to hell. And the word there for hell, as you know, is Gehenna. Most of the time in the New Testament, not always, but most of the time in the New Testament, when you see the word hell, it is translated from the Greek word Gehenna. And what is Gehenna? Some of you were here a few weeks ago. Some of you weren't. Let me just briefly explain. Gehenna was a literal valley on the southwest end of Jerusalem. I showed a picture of it. It's a beautiful park today that I've been to. But in Jesus' day, the valley of Gehenna, or in Hebrew, the valley of Hinnom, was the city garbage dump. It's where the entire city of Jerusalem would dump their garbage. All of their refuse they would throw into the valley of Gehenna. Even the bodies of executed criminals would be tossed into Gehenna. And like any garbage dump, it was a place where fires were constantly burning. Round the clock, smoke was constantly billowing out of the valley of Gehenna. It was literally the place where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. So it was a place of unsightly images and rancid smells. It was the place you don't want to be. You don't want to be around Gehenna. And so around the days of Jesus, you know, the rabbis would utilize Gehenna as a metaphor of warning. And we see Jesus doing this right here several times in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, if, if you don't abandon that trajectory of life where you go about treating people as objects for your own personal benefit, if you don't turn from that, you're going to end up, the direction you're going is going to take you right into the Valley of Gehenna. It's no different than when, when we say, if you don't change the way you're living, you're gonna flush your life down the toilet. So this word, this image of Gehenna, it, it was utilized as an image of absolute and utter ruin. And so what Jesus is trying to teach us is that when we d disrespect people and fail, them to fail to regard them as sacred, and we fail to see them as a person who has value in and of themselves simply because they bear God's image, what we begin to do is we objectify them and use them for our own lusts, for money, sex, and power. And when we no longer find them useful, we treat them as an object that is not useful and we, we toss them into the garbage dump. We, we discard them, we cast them aside. We say, I can no longer use you to benefit me in the area of money, sex, and power. So now I'm just going to cast you aside as a worthless object. Jesus is saying, when you make this your way of life, that's gonna come back upon you. Because first of all, it's going to utterly ruin your soul. I think just in recent years, even right here locally in Los Angeles, Hollywood, I think we've seen even recently just very public graphic examples of exactly what Jesus is saying. I just have to say the name Harvey Weinstein. Or I can say names like Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein, and I'm sure we could come up with others. Here are examples, living examples to us of human beings who, who treated other human beings, built their whole life on treating human beings as objects in order to satisfy a personal lust for money, sex, or power, or some combination. And in the process, utterly ruined their soul and eventually found their entire life thrust into a place of utter ruin. This is what Jesus is talking about. Now, yes, there is the judgment seat of Christ, and there is the, the very real possibility of Gehenna beyond the grave, but I'm here to tell you, you don't have to wait until you die to begin experiencing the hellish consequences 
of treating human beings as objects because you're already fully invested in the process of ruining your own soul. And that's what Jesus is trying to warn us about using very strong language. Everything, everything, everything is reciprocal. And when we ruin people by treating them as objects, that, that's, that same rule is going to come into your own life. And unfortunately, that's been the story of human history. But, but finally, Jesus arrives and he steps onto the stage of human history and he announces, I've got a whole new way of doing it. I've got a whole new way of arranging the world under my reign. A different way of life. And it's no longer going to be built upon the energies of lust. Instead, as we sang this morning, we're going to build it on the foundation of love. And if we're going to participate in this, first of all, we absolutely must be born again. And we must be born of water and born of the Spirit. Absolutely, if we're going to participate in what Jesus is doing, we need to be reborn. But, but, but once that happens, the very next thing Jesus is going to do is he's going to call you and I into a community of people called a local church. And ideally, what a local church is supposed to be is a community of people who together are learning how to think differently, how to live differently, how to relate to humankind differently, called the Jesus way, the way of the Sermon on the Mount, the way of Calvary, the Calvary-formed life. That's what we're doing. That's what we're hopefully doing here at Village. And the Jesus way is the way of the garden. It's not the way of the garbage dump. When you objectify people, when you size them up according to their ability to satisfy your desire for lust uh, or lust for money, sex, and power, what you do is you treat them as an object, and once you've used them up, you toss them aside into the garbage dump of life. But the Jesus way treats every person with living, flourishing potential that we are to nurture, that we're to be careful with that we're to be tender with because they have the capacity to bring forth a uniqueness that no one else will ever have. So the Jesus way is learning how to identify and respect the image of God upon every person you ever lay eyes on. Now, I totally understand that people can be very marred and scarred by their sin, they, sin can really deface the beauty of a human being. I totally understand that. But what I'm also telling you is that Jesus' people understand underneath all of that, that person still carries within them the image of their creator. And one of the ways, one of the main ways we help recover that is by treating them like what they are. People who have intrinsic value because they're made in God's image. And we don't fixate and focus on the marring and the scarring in order to justify our contempt and our disrespect for them and our mistreatment of them. No, we learn how to look past that because what does the sixth beatitude say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When you and I have a pure enough heart, we can look at any human being and despite whatever else we see, we're capable of seeing the beauty of God's image on that person. And when we treat people with that kind of dignity and value, when we relate to them that way, Jesus is saying, this is how we are salt. This is how we are light. This is how we become the city set upon a hill 
And as we live the Jesus way of life, it draws people forth to become part of that great city and to become who they really are. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.